listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. Today our subject is Jnana Yoga, and again we're talking about the explanation or description of Jnana Yoga in the Bhagavad Gita. So I thought it would be useful for us and our listeners to hear a, a brief definition of what is Jnana Yoga. Well, um, basically Jnana means wisdom, and uh, you know in India, uh, in Indian philosophy, w- wisdom is, isn't um, fact. Isn't just a collection of data uh, of knowing, you know, how many planets there are, and you know the sum, of, you know, the the your mathematical sums. It's a uh, wisdom's defined as as transformative. It's knowledge that transforms you. It changes you. It makes you into a different kind of a person. And uh, so this is a uh, the goal is to to have that kind of wisdom, which means that we have to overcome ignorance. And um, in in the to... Indian traditions in general, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, and others, the, uh, the ignorance plays the same kind of role that um, disobedience plays in Western traditions. You know, like if you remember the, you know, the Garden of Eden myth, the reason that Adam and Eve got kicked out was because they disobeyed. And uh, so, you know, you could say like in the beginning was disobedience, and that's why we have all all these problems. Um, that's the Western point of view. The Eastern point of view is, you know. Since beginningless time, which is a long time, uh, we've been ignorant about the way the world is. And as a result of that ignorance, we, we act, we speak, and we think in ways that create negative karma for ourselves, that cause uh, suffering and continued rebirth. So the way to break that cycle is to is to you know figure out what what wisdom is and, uh, and and what ignorance is and to and to stop being ignorant and to start being wise and and as a result of that wisdom we we act and speak and think differently in such a way that we aren't uh, perpetually recreating the causes of our own suffering. So basically, one of the you know one of the sort of basic foundational dimensions of wisdom is um, is understanding karma is understanding that every every act we do everything that we say every thought even that we have uh, has repercussions for the future and uh, you know at, at a very very basic level the, the idea is to you know stop recreating the causes of suffering by understanding that any action any speech act or any thought that harmful to other people that's uh, stimulated by what we call a mental affliction, anger, strong desire, uh, pride, envy, any act like that is going to is going to hurt us in the future. And uh, the beginning of wisdom is to is to just uh, have enough regard for yourself uh, and for your happiness, not to recreate the causes of your own pain over and over again. How is wisdom connected to contemplation, reflection, and awareness? Well, the deeper levels of wisdom, uh, you know, according to the Gita and other Indian texts, are you know are realized uh, only in deep meditation. So, in our ordinary non-meditative lives, as we're going through our day, uh, we're taken in by appearance. You know, this is what's called Maya in uh, in Indian philosophy, the illusion. Uh, the main what Maya means is is not that somehow things don't exist or that, you know, if I figured out, uh, you know, wisdom or something, figured out the illusion, I could walk through walls or, you know, something like that. It's not like that. You know, walls exist. 
you you don't think so, uh, you know, it, just step in front of a, a moving car and your <laughs> illusory body will get an illusory, you know, broken bones and you'll end up in an illusory hospital. Uh, so it's not that things don't exist, but they don't exist the way they appear, the way they seem. And, uh, and, and what that basically means is it looks like there's a world out there, that there's an objective, uh, independently existing world that's coming at us. You know, that we're, we're just an observer of. And, uh, sort of, and that's, that's the, that's the basic nature of the illusion. It looks that way. It's only after years and years of, uh, of study and of deep reflection and especially of, of deep meditation, how things really are, uh, that one begins to get a little, uh, wisdom and a little suspicion about the way things appear. So, uh, the way things really exist, the, the things do exist, but they exist as as a projection coming from us, not at us. So uh, the, the whole world, as we perceive it, is it is coming from us. And and another sort of dimension of wisdom is understanding that if we change ourselves, if we change our mental apparatus, we change our perception of the world, which is the only world that's ever been there anyway, is a world that as it's been perceived by us. So if you change yourself, you you literally change the world around you. You change your perception of the world around you. Which is the only knowable world there's ever been, and uh, that's a that's a, a, a deeper level of wisdom, a deeper understanding of wisdom, which is the premise, which is the condition of possibility for an enlightened an enlightened state, and uh, and and a perfect world, uh, a, a paradisi a paradise, live in a paradise. Uh, the, the 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 condition of possibility for that is that there there is no world apart from your perception of the world for you. So if you change your perception of the world, you change the world. Now, you mentioned two things that I want to ask you about, one of which is the study of scriptures. Is this an integral part of the path of jnana yoga to study the scriptures that are are related to the time of the Buddha or that came from the uh, Vedanta philosophy and the Vedas? I would say this. I would say that... Amazon.com and 
So we have this temptation to say, well, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll just read on my own or I'll just like, you know, figure it out on my own through, through uh, you know, through reading Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita or some Buddhist text or the New Testament or whatever. You know, that you can waste a lot of time doing that. You can spend, you know, decades uh, trying to figure out what those what those scriptures are teaching, or you can be led through those scriptures by an authoritative source, uh, one who represents a lineage uh, of, of understanding what those scriptures really mean. And, uh, you know, a text like the Bhagavad Gita is not self-evident, I would uh, and other texts are even self-evident. You know, something like the Yoga Sutra, for example, is, you know, it's just aphorisms. They're just, uh, you know, they're just brief, short aphorisms that demand a commentary. And, uh, and so, you know, we... We uh, have this temptation to think, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just get books or, you know, go online or something like that. I'll visit websites and get wisdom. And uh, that's not how you get wisdom, actually. It's that, the, it, you get facts that way. You get information that way. But information is not wisdom. No, it's very important, I think, very important distinction that information and wisdom are two different things. And the wisdom comes through the interaction with a teacher, primarily with a teacher, and who, who can teach you the, the deeper levels of things. Uh, so that's, that's, I think, more important, even more important than scripture is the guru. And how, is it, how important is it to find a teacher who is living and what happens when the teacher leaves and the student is left behind? How does that wisdom get conveyed to the student? Well, uh, yes, I think it's very important to find a teacher who is living. You know, there's no substitute for the, the personal interaction, uh, the dynamics that occur in a, in a relationship. And, you know, that's the case. In the spiritual life, it's a case in, in, in other forms, too. I've been a teacher my whole life or in a student. And, uh, you know, there's no substitution for that personal relationship between a student and a teacher. So I'd say that's, that's very, very critical uh, to find a teacher. They also say that you should take a time finding the teacher, that, that finding the guru, finding your spiritual teacher is an extremely important, uh, an extremely important enterprise. And, and you don't just like, you know, sort of pick whoever happens to, you know, be passing through town, you know. Uh, you, you, you spend time, you investigate, you, 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 you check the, the teacher out. You know, in, in, in the tradition, and traditionally they, they said that, pro- that process lasts 12 years, where you're supposed to spend 12 years trying to, you know, make sure that the, that the teacher is the right one for you because you're putting your spiritual real estate into their hands. And uh, that's a very, very important, very important decision. But, and, and, you know, and, and you have to find the right one for you. There's not, there's not one teacher for everyone. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, but then, the, and then the, uh, the process, once you've found your teacher, the process is learning, is, is learning that the wisdom that the teacher can convey to you uh, changes you in such a way that you become your own teacher. And that, that is the goal. Over, over time, the goal is to be, to be the teacher, to, to learn to conform your mind and your habit and your life, your very life, to the life of an enlightened being, of a, a divine. And the ultimate goal is, is, to, uh, is to become a teacher yourself. And, and so when the teacher leaves, I mean, you know, in a way you could say the teacher never leaves, because if you're doing your job well, if you're practicing guru yoga, what we call guru yoga well, you realize that the teacher is inside of you, that the teacher lives inside of you, and so you, they never leave you. They never leave you. That, that's a long process, you know. The, 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 it takes a long time to interiorize the teacher, and, uh, and, and the beginning of that process is finding a real, live, living being who you start working with as the, as the guru, as the spiritual teacher, and, and developing the wisdom that we were talking about before uh, through, 
through that interaction, through realizing that the teacher is what we call empty, that the teacher isn't coming from his or her side, that things aren't coming at us, they're coming from us. And that's the case also with the teacher that we are projecting. The teacher is a, you know, is a mirror, as we were talking about last time, and, and it's just a kind of a special case of, of reality in general. It's a, it's a, you could say it's a privileged case. The guru is a privileged case of what is the, what is the fact, what is the, what is the reality of, uh, in, 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 every, in, in everything, that everything is coming from and not at us. But we're concentrating that, that um, understanding on the teacher and saying, well, what is this teacher's actions, what are their words teaching me about something about myself? What is it that, uh, that I need to learn through interacting with this person who's mirroring my, my good qualities, my best qualities, and also my worst qualities? Uh, <laughs> so, so when we... We, we're, we're in the process of changing ourselves through the interaction with our teacher, which then changes our perception of the teacher and of the world around us. When we change ourselves, we change our perception of the world. And this is a fundamental fact. I mean, you know, this is, a, this is really something that um, we all have to struggle with because it doesn't look that way. You see, it's maya. It looks as if there's an objective world out there, independent of my perception of it. So, you know, we have to think about that. We have to, we have to wrestle with that, with the appearance of things and say, like, is it possible? What does it mean to say that there's a world independent of my perception of it? How, how would I ever know that? We've been talking about the yoga of wisdom or jnana yoga. And one of the things that you've mentioned a couple times in, in answering the questions is when we change ourselves, we change our world. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on the process by which we start to understand that the world is really a projection of us. Well, I think it's, I think it's, just, a, it's just a matter of being intellectually honest. And, and I think it kind of goes like this. Is it true? You know, you just wrestle with this, okay? You just, like, meditate on this. Is it true that that the, the world is unknowable to me except through my subjective apparatus, my subjective understanding of the world? Is it possible to somehow get outside of my, my own subjectivity and get an objective view of the world? And if you're honest with yourself, if you've, you know, if you've been paying attention to... Um, you know, to the developments in the academic world uh, over the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. You know, people have given up, especially in the humanities and social sciences, and, and also to, to a large extent in the physical sciences as well, have given up on the idea of objectivity. But there is no possibility of escaping your, your subjective point of view, of your perspective on, uh, you know, in, in the hard sciences, they, you know, they, they say that the object changes by... Yes. <laughs> which indicates that
that's that's highfalutin. That's the you know sort of deep philosophical thing. But we have experience of this in our everyday lives, don't we? I mean, you know, one we we we, we have an expression. We we got out out of bed on the wrong side. Remember, you know that one. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you know, you, you get up one day and Vancouver looks crappy. You know, it's all it's so rainy, it's so dismal here, and so forth. And then the very next day, maybe you know, you get out of bed and and, and Vancouver looks looks great, and, and it's still raining. <laughs> it's raining that all the time, isn't it? But you know, some days it looks great, and some days it looks crappy. Now, did Vancouver change, or did your perspective on Vancouver change? You see, and so if that's the case, if we could, if we can if we could learn how to control our perspective, then we then we have a different we'll have a different world. We'll be living in a different world, a different understanding of the world, which is. You know, a, a different a different perspective on the world, which is the only world knowable, is filtered through a perspective. So you change your perspective, you literally change your world. Now, I grew up on New Age type books, audio books that my dad would play that were all about you can do whatever you want and and you create your world and you are incredible and all sorts of positive affirming messages. And I'm wondering what's the difference between New Age type affirmations that we create our world, but what's the difference between that and wisdom? Yeah, good. That's a really good question. And, uh, you know, I don't don't mean to... uh, uh, in what I say now, I don't mean to badmouth any perspective because, you know, the new age, I think certain New Age uh, philosophies and, and teachings are very, very useful. But there is, of course, um, there is, of course, a danger that people will kind of um, recede into a kind of a childish understanding of how the world works and say, well, if the world is just being projected from me, then I guess if I just closed my eyes and wished real hard, that I could see the world differently. And of course it doesn't work that way. We've tried that, you know, our whole lives, beginning when we were children. Mm-hmm. When, you know, we just say, oh, I'll hold my breath until I turn blue, until, you know, uh, um, <laughs> unless you change, unless the world changes. And of course it's not going to change that way. So the way to change your perspective is not just to want a different perspective. You know, this is kind of like the error. This is kind of the mistake of, um, you know, of, of this understanding there's a law of attraction or something like that where if you just want something bad enough, mm-hmm. get it. And uh, that's that's just foolish. That's just childish. Anyone, you know, <laughs> anyone who's, who's been paying attention to life knows that it doesn't work that way. You know, here's how it works. You have to create the causes for things. If you want something, you can get it, but you have to create the causes for, for it. it does, and the cause for it isn't just wanting it. The cause is karma. So you can have, you know, here's, here's the real wisdom when it comes to, like, getting what you want out of life and not, and not getting what you don't want is, you know, is understanding how things are working, understanding karma. If you want something, make sure somebody else gets it first. Yeah, well, that's interesting because I was just thinking that from this paradigm of I want this, it seems to, to multiply desires and multiply a paradigm of scarcity of not having rather than, say, for example, functioning from a, a different mentality of contentment. Yeah, right, of course. And, uh, you know, ultimately we do want we want contentment. But, you know, people sometimes think, well, you know, I can't be content because I need more money or I can't be content because I need a relationship, a better relationship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, at, at some point you just have to say, okay, this is good enough. And, and that's the only way you'll ever achieve contentment. But in the meantime, uh, you know, you can garden, you can garden for, uh, for a future that, that in which you feel like you could be content. So if you feel like, you know, you don't have enough money, you know, it's, it's important to have money. It's important to have, uh, 
you know, material prosperity. The, a spiritual life depends on it, actually, on a, on a certain level of, you know, of material uh, well-being. Mm-hmm. And, but, but to understand how things are really working, you know, you receive by giving. And, of course, that's the, that's the way it works. So, so if you want money, make sure that other people have money. If you, if you want material prosperity, help foster the prosperity of others. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. You know, Jesus said that, and that's karma. That's the idea of karma, and you don't hear that enough, I think, in the New Age, you know, kind of, kind of discourses. You mm-hmm. don't, you know, a lot of times the, the understanding of karma just gets dropped, mm-hmm. that somehow you could just, like, short-circuit karma and just get what you want instantaneously by, by desiring it enough. Mm-hmm. So here's, you know, in answer to your question, Sarah, here's an interesting kind of concept. Uh, if you're going to, if you're going, if you want something, if you want, prosperity, if you want a good relationship or so forth, you have to first be willing to give it up. In other words, you have to be willing to put other people first and not want it. You see what I mean? To give up your desire in order to attain your desire. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's deep wisdom, okay? You get what you want by not wanting it <laughs> and, and wanting it for others, okay? If you, if you give, you shall receive, but you have to give in order to receive. You see, you have to be willing to give. Mm-hmm. You're willing to give up your own self-interest in it, and everything comes to you. Then everything will come to you. But giving up the self-interest is hard, and that's the, that's the error that we make over and over and over again. So, well, what about me? What about me? If I give, you know, then I won't have it. If I, if I give to someone else, then I won't have it. And uh, that's exactly wrong. If you don't give, you won't have it. You see, if you don't give, you won't receive. If you give, you must receive. <laughs> and, right. If if you want better relationships, foster the relationships of other people. Look look after the relationship of, and be very careful in your own in your own life to to not interfere with those relationships. If you want if you want money, don't steal. Give and don't steal. You see, this is karma. And uh, and so that at the bottom of karma, you know, at the bottom of of understanding how the world works is 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 the understanding that to fulfill our desires we have to relinquish them in order to get everything we have to be willing to give up everything mm-hmm. uh, that's really hard and that's a lifetime that's a lifetime pursuit isn't it absolutely <laughs> absolutely there's one more question i'd like to ask and that comes to something you said very early on in the interview that jnana is realized in meditation and I'm wondering how important a meditation practice is to really develop in our wisdom. Well, it's extremely important for, for, for the reasons that I was, I was mentioning before. I mean, it's, it's um, I mean, fundamentally meditation learning how to concentrate, how, how to put your mind on an object single-pointedly and concentrate on it. And uh, the, reason, the reason why we are ignorant is we can't concentrate. We, 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 we are taken in by appearances. And we're constantly distracted, constantly distracted, and constantly seeking distraction. So meditation combats this tendency that we all have, a uh, very, very strong tendency, mm-hmm. to, uh, to just have a mind that's flitting from one thing to another rather than holding still and thinking in a very, very powerful, la- laser-like way about, uh, about important things, about the nature of reality. And so, uh, you know, meditation is a tool. Meditation isn't an end in itself. It's interesting. Meditation, it, there's nothing sort of virtuous, inherently virtuous about meditation. It's, but it's a, it's a skill. It's a tool that can be used then for something, for something virtuous, for understanding how things really are working. So, you know, some people get good at meditating, meditating on, you know, on their breath or, you know, something like that, and they get one-pointed, they get the ability to be, you know, very, very concentrated, but they're concentrated on their breath, and, you know, your breath, does, you know, 
<laughs> really good at concentrating on your breath. But if you learn the, the skill of concentration, and, and that can be by, by practicing with your breath, but if you learn the skill of, of, of meditative concentration, then you turn it on something like, is it the case that, you know, and you think, is it the case that, that, that I, uh, an objective world is unknowable to me and that, that everything is filtered through my subjectivity? Is, is that the case? And you think about something like that very, very concentratedly. And then you think, and what are the implications of that? What are the ramifications of it? If I change my understanding of myself, my, my subjective point of view, I would, change my, I would change my perception of the world, which is the only knowable world there's ever been. And the way to change your subjectivity is to change your karma, is to change your sense of, of who you have been, uh, you know, what kind of actions you have created, which, which gives you a different sense of self, doesn't it? We are who we think we once were, and uh, that's karma. You know, that's a sort of an understanding of karma. So meditation is, uh, is the ability to think about things like that and to penetrate, to penetrate the, illusive, the illusory appearances of things. But the only way that we can really, really do that is to learn how to concentrate, learn how to fix our mind single-pointedly on, on, uh, on, on, important, on important wisdom, on important understandings of, of the world, which changes us. That's a, that is the purpose of meditation, is to, is to, uh, is to learn how to be happy, actually, <laughs> by understanding what the causes of happiness really are. And uh, the causes of happiness are not ignorance. The ignorance and, uh, and, and going around like in a, in a kind of a daze, unthinkingly through life, is not the cause of happiness. That will not make us happy. The, ignorance is not bliss. Wisdom is bliss. <laughs> I was just going to ask you if you can end on 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 the opposite on what does bring us happiness, but you said it right there. Wisdom is bliss. Thanks so much for being with us, and it's it's really been a wonderful experience for me personally to engage with you, and also to be motivated and inspired to read the Bhagavad Gita and really think about it and in a meaningful way. So it's been really wonderful, both for us, mind, and for me personally. Well, thank you very much. It's been a privilege. And uh, I just wanted to just mention that, you know, we'll be, we'll be um, in South Lake Tahoe in California from August 5th through 21st on, in, a, in a kind of a retreat setting, a yoga philosophy retreat. Mm -hmm. We've entitled The Missing Teachings of Yoga, an Intensive in the Yoga of Wisdom. And uh, people can find out about that um, through uh, through a website, Classics of Yoga Retreat, one word, classicsofyogaretreat.com. And, uh, you know, if, if you're intrigued, uh, you know, come for some part or, or, or the whole of that retreat, and, uh, and we'll just be focusing on this uh, all day long in a very, very beautiful setting. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.